Weird Al was really good back nope. in the day. Weird yeah. Al is awesome. Yeah. There are a couple haters that I've known who just don't appreciate the humor, but I don't know what's wrong with them. Well, I think they think they're supposed to hate it, you know, because they like look at the concept of it, <laughs> and they're like, I'm better than this. But you know what? You're not better than Weird Al. No, you're not. I saw a little documentary uh, when he was producing his last album. He does everything himself. All the instruments, all of everything, pretty much. That guy's really talented. And it looks like he just loves his life and like has so much fun and... I'm just <laughs> kind of jealous of him and his life and how awesome Why? it is. Because he just gets to be, he made nerd, he's one of the first people that made it work like as far as like just making a career out of his weird nerdiness. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. How the fuck did a guy like that get on TV? I have no idea. Who knows how these things work? It's and he probably take, right place, right time. And he you takes never it. Know. He takes it to like MTV music executives. I guess MTV was just getting started, so they were also like, we don't know what the hell we're doing. Yeah. And they're like, okay, this guy does really funny parodies, and he plays the accordion. I mean, I bet quite a bit of it is just like, yeah, I have the balls, and I'm going to just go to these MTV executives with my accordion and say, check out my shit, because I'm this much of a badass. He calls himself Weird Al. Yeah. You might need to talk a little bit louder. So what's the equipment? Your your equipment's obviously way better than this, right? You know, I don't... Yeah, I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I sounded like an asshole. You can be an asshole to me. I mean, that's what... <laughs> I mean, that's fine. More, like, you know, I probably deserve it somehow. It's a little bit better. I honestly don't know exactly what kind of mics we use because every time I'm in there, I'm always in a hurry, and so I don't really have time to check out what it is. But they're good mics. They're pretty sensitive. I'm pretty sure they're condensers. We need, like, to put serious windscreens on them because they're incredibly sensitive to plosives. So even with the windscreens, I've got to back off and I've got to like curb my P's and T's when I talk. So you really know what you're doing. I don't really know what I'm doing, actually. It's just I've been like winging it the last couple months and kind of figuring it out as I go along. <laughs> so. I've been winging it for like a year now. Well, the, the only reason I know about that is because one of the DJs at the station used to work for NPR and she did like a little mic training session Okay, so um, well, maybe we should probably start talking about the you know radio show you do. Okay, okay, like because we're talking about it right now. Okay, um, either that or Weird Al. Oh, mean, whatever direction you want to go with I, this, I don't care. You're <laughs> yeah. you're, you're the leader. You yeah. you lead me along. Okay, what is this radio station that you do? So I have a new music radio show called Muddle Instead of Music, and that name comes from the famous uh, article in the Soviet newspaper Pravda, which denounced Shostakovich and his opera Lady Macbeth of the Natanz District. And it said, this is muddle instead of music, and it's politically and socially dangerous. And after that, you know, Shostakovich was blacklisted and became an enemy of the state and, you know, had this weird relationship with the government and so forth. But I liked that idea of, you know, new music being this incredibly subversive force, you know, something that has the power to turn everything about music and its role in society kind of upside down. So I called the show Muddle Instead of Music, and it's on this station in Louisville called Art FM. It's basically kind of public radio. It's an independent station, but they have, as of right now, at least five or six shows dedicated to experimental music. And mine's one of them. There's one that does purely like sound art and soundscapes, another one that does kind of the outer edges of kind of electronica or indie rock kind of music. And they all kind of play some new music in there here or there, you know, so they're familiar with it. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting station, an interesting project. And I'm excited to be there because 
it it's a good thing for the community and it's going to they're going to have an FM license probably by the end of the year so it's really going to going to go far and wide and I've never heard of an FM station that is this kind of this committed to this kind of weird music and an FM station that has six Programs. Experimental music channels. Programs, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. How did this how did this get started? This is so this is in this is in Kentucky. In Louisville, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, let's see if I know the history of this. So every year in Louisville they have this thing called the Idea Festival, which is not quite like TED. It's actually more interesting than TED, but it's it's kind of a similar idea where, you know, they bring in these people to do to talk about kind of controversial like new paradigm kind of ideas or things or whatever who goes there are people invited from all over the place people are invited from all over the place yeah Yeah, it's like a national thing and so i think the station started first to kind of broadcast and help kind of curate this idea festival and then it became its own station after a year that's the history of it and you know when i was uh coming back home to louisville from buffalo i wanted to find a way to make myself part of the of the new music community there as quickly as possible so that I wouldn't feel kind of isolated. And I saw a lot of my friends and people I know reference the station. I'm like, what is this? And so I look it up and I started listening to it. I'm like, wow, this is really, really interesting, this thing that they're doing. And so I talked to the director of the station and she said, you know, yeah, we have some people that play new music kind of as part of their shows, but we don't have an entire show dedicated to new music and we're really interested in this. So here you go. They gave me one. <laughs> and I've been they, doing and it they since. give you your own show. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm curious. You said once you moved to back to Louisville from Buffalo where you're still, I think you're still doing a PhD there, right? I'm still doing a PhD there. Yeah. I'm finishing my dissertation right now. And you said you were eager to integrate yourself back into the scene. Mm-hmm. What the hell's going on in Louisville? In Louisville, actually, there's a surprising amount of people who are dedicated and passionate about experimental music. And there's a surprising number of composers there, uh, many of whom are very, very good. And they're starting to build up some players and some infrastructure for doing this for doing this kind of music. So I know that I knew that there were people working there and I wanted to kind of to be a part of it. And Louisville has a kind of interesting history with contemporary music because on the one hand, you know, it's a kind of smaller, mid-sized Midwestern city. So it doesn't really have the infrastructure of something like Chicago, for example, or even New York. But on the other hand, it's the home of the Grommeyer, which is the biggest award in contemporary music in the world. And in the 50s and 60s, the Louisville Orchestra was internationally known for playing contemporary music. I mean, they have, you can find records of the Louisville Orchestra playing No-No. and No uh, way, really? Yeah, and Henry Cowell. And they, they commissioned all these people, you know. There's, I think I even saw one where they're playing Zanakis on there at some point. How did that happen? It, it was an interesting time culturally in Louisville in the 50s because they were very interested in um, kind of promoting themselves as a, as a center for art. And so the mayor and the artistic director of the orchestra who i'm pretty sure was what's his name robert whitney at the time were were saying you know it's very important for us to be cutting edge and to support the most cutting edge music and you know to have this orchestra be kind of a leader in playing this cutting edge music so there's actually a really interesting documentary called uh, music makes a city which is about the louisville orchestra in this period in the 50s and 60s where they were like really well known for being the new music orchestra of the United States. At any rate, this is just to say that 
you know, Louisville has a history of contemporary music. And even though the amount of activity kind of waxes and wanes, depending on the artistic climate, the economic climate, you know, people are doing work there. And I figured if I'm going to be back, I want to be a part of this community and to help build this and participate in this too. Well, you said there's a lot of interest in you're starting to gather. When you say experimental music, what is, I mean, that's a broad term. What does that mean? Do you mean like the type of stuff that's going on here where it takes a very high caliber level of player to do something? Or do you mean something more of the lines of bordering on theater and just activities? I'm almost thinking of like a fluxus. You don't need to be a virtuoso to participate type thing. There's a little bit of both, probably more of the latter, given the fact that uh, – there aren't as many high-caliber performers in a place like Louisville, given that it's not a cultural center like New York or Chicago that attracts players of quite that caliber. But there's definitely both. And even though it's more kind of towards the latter, it's starting to lean towards the former as things kind of get built up. That's the major issue right now in the contemporary music scene in Louisville right now is getting the players who can be really dedicated to this. But until then, people work with what they have and do what they can and bring players from the outside and, you know, make it work in any way that they can. Are you doing a lot of bringing players in from the outside? Like, I'm just wondering how you're living. Oh, this music is what is. I don't know what this is. It's awful. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> what, what can you do? Yeah. Okay. So you're originally you're originally from there. I'm originally from there. Yeah. And uh, and you speak Russian. I speak. <laughs> yeah, I speak because... Russian because my my parents are Russian. My yeah. dad is from Kiev, and my mom is from this town uh, on the Volga River called Samara. And then she moved to Saint Petersburg and went to the Leningrad Conservatory and all that stuff. And you know met my dad, they immigrated to the States in 1980. So I've never been to Russia, actually. I've been, you know, I've been talking to all the Russians here, and they mention all this Russian stuff to me. <laughs> like, actually, I've never been there before. So Why have you never gone? First of all, it's complicated for uh, Americans to get into Russia because you need a visa, and the application process takes, can take about six months, actually, to get a visa to go into Russia. Uh, you can get into Ukraine, actually, with an American passport. And I've briefly considered doing that, but it's not feasible for me to simply go to Europe unless I have a reason to be there. You know, like this festival, you know, I paid a lot of money to come out here because I have a performance here, but I can't pay that kind of money just to go to Europe. Like, I don't have it. Yeah. So, and my parents have never been back, actually. You know, they've never really had a desire to go back. They nobody, none of my family is there anymore. So it's a totally different country than the one that they grew up in. So they never really felt any kind of nostalgia or anything like that. So maybe someday I'll make it out there if I have <laughs> a whole lot of cash to burn. But Yeah, they they come from Russia. Your mother is a what? A, what instrument does she play? She plays the piano. She's a piano teacher right now, actually. Okay. But she studied music theory. She has a master's in music theory. So she was a music theorist. Yeah, she was okay. a music theorist. She was trained as a music theorist, yeah. How do you get into new music? I guess through your mother. So there's a very clear lineage about how I get into contemporary music. And I knew you were going to ask me this question, so I thought about how to answer it. So when I was eight, I was really into metal. Like, what, the thing that made me decide that I was going to be a musician for the rest of my life was hearing Metallica's Master of Puppets. Oh, my God. Okay. And uh, so 
you know. I mean, it's a good album. Yeah. yeah. So I was seven or eight when I heard it, and that's what cemented it for me. A couple of years later, I hear Nine Inch Nails' Broken album. Do you do you know that one? Very yeah, of course well? I do. Yeah. We're around the same age, so. Right. Yeah. So I, I like that record because that's his most kind of straightforward traditional rock record. But then when I'm 12, I hear The Downward Spiral. And that changed my life, The Downward Spiral. It's still my favorite album of all time because it taught me to listen to music in a completely different way. Because even though it still has rock elements, all the songs contain all these crazy sounds. And even the traditional rock instruments are subverted so that nothing, everything sounds kind of surreal and uncanny and distorted. Like a guitar sounds... Not really like any guitar that you would hear. The drums are all kind of filtered and distant. And you'd have a wall of absolute noise with whispering over top of it. And the whispering would be louder than the noise. It created this radically subjective, completely surreal space. And I'd never heard anything like it. So that kind of set a path for me that said music can do this. And this is insane. And this is completely what I want to be doing. So... After the Downward Spiral, uh, there was a remix album called Further Down the Spiral. And a couple of the remixes uh, featured a guy named Aphex Twin. It's all like remixes of songs from the Downward Spiral. So Aphex Twin remixes some. There's some by Coil. A couple other people who are, who are big in the kind of electro-industrial scene in the mid-90s. Anyway, so if Trent, is my, if Trent Reznor is my great-grandpa, I think Richard James is probably my grandpa. He's the Aphex Twin. Aphex Twin, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I got into Aphex Twin, which is this, which at the time was this radically experimental electronic techno music. And that kind of pushed the envelope even further for me. Like, here's a guy making sounds with his computer, like doing things with music that I'd never heard before, making sounds that I thought were completely impossible and could never have imagined. And so I got into him and, you know, the people kind of around the Warp Records label, like Autechre and Square Pusher, and reading interviews with them, they would always drop these names like John Cage, Karl-Heinz Stockhausen, Edgar Varez, Yana Zanakis. And I'm like, who are these people? How old are you at this time? What, probably maybe, about 16, 17, 15, probably okay. about 15. Yeah. And so I'm like, John Cage, Stockhausen, who are these people? And so I go and check out Contacta, Sonata's and Interludes for Prepared Piano, Metastasis, Pythopracta. And I'm 15 and 16, or, you know, like deserts. Like I, I got the complete works of Edgar Varese as a present when I was 15. And I'm listening to this and I'm like, holy shit, this is incredible. This doesn't sound like any music that I've ever heard. And it doesn't even sound like music. I don't even know what this is, but this is better than music. <laughs> so, it, so from that point on, I knew that this is how I wanted to engage with music. These were people that were creating their own highly subjective, highly unique sound worlds, things that didn't sound like anything else, that didn't sound like anybody else, that were incredibly personal and incredibly radical. And I thought, music can do this, and a person can do this with music, and I want to do this too. Okay, so what do you start doing? So I start downloading illegal software from the internet. Basically, at the time, they had various kind of crude equivalents of GarageBand and audio, audio editing software, and I just download hacked versions of this. I'm 14, 15, and I start messing around. I start like recording sounds with my cheap Radio Shack microphone and then like warping and stretching and distorting them in absolutely any shape or form and making these kinds of music concrete compositions with them. 
just making this kind of electronic music. And then with that, I applied to Oberlin for their uh, electronic music major, which was called uh, Timara, Technology in Music and Related Arts. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a, a corny label, but, you know, it's basically uh, a division of the composition department that focused specifically on electronic composition. So I applied to Oberlin with that, and then in Oberlin is when I started writing for more uh, traditional instruments and electronics combined. And so really, you have you didn't write for any acoustic instruments till you got into college. Yeah, I didn't know. It, it just never occurred to me. First of all, it never occurred to me that somebody could study something like this before one went to college. I went to college, and all these people had like composition lessons since they were teenagers, and I'm like, what? You could study this? <laughs> like, why didn't yeah. anyone tell me? When you're 14 and 15 who's gonna play this stuff anyway <laughs> yeah, exactly. what do you have access to yeah you, you, ha- you don't i don't have access to anything so i mean i was listening to music that was doing radical things with instruments but i thought i just never occurred to me that i could be doing that too instead of just using my computer instead okay it's okay, so then oberlin you start writing for instruments yeah so oberlin i have access to instrumentalists and they you know they say good ones too yeah very I mean, good ones a good school yeah the first the first piece i ever wrote for acoustic instruments is was a flute and tape piece that still actually gets played occasionally embarrassingly enough it's really embarrassing that's awful when that happens i hate it i hate it, it but but you know no, no offense to anybody that plays it and loves to play it if you want to play it, it i can't stop you but so the, this flute player comes up to me her name is elise blatchford and she says i'm a flute player but you know, most stuff that people write for me is way too easy. Write me absolutely the most difficult, insane, stupidly hard thing that you can imagine. And that's, I'm like... That's a bad idea for a player to ask a composer to do that. I know. <laughs> and like, I'm why like, would you do that? And I'm like, are you sure you want this? I was like 19 at the time. Like, are you sure? Because if you give me permission, I'm going to do some crazy shit. And she's like, yeah, give me, the, give me the most insane stuff you can. So the most insane stuff that I could do at 19 is probably not much more insane than the Barrio flute sequenza, honestly. <laughs> so it was like a mishmash of extended techniques and like singing and playing and like, you know, that, that sort of stuff, the stuff one does when, when one's 19, plus like with, you know, electronic sounds on the tape. But that's what got me started writing for instruments. And until I went to Buffalo, I considered myself primarily an electronic composer, actually. Like that's kind of my native tongue is electronic music. But when I went to Buffalo, I made it a project for myself specifically to say, I'm going to focus on instrumental composition. I'm going to put electronic music aside for a little while for a period in my life and focus specifically on instrumental writing. And so that's what I've been doing in the last five years or so. Just instrumental writing. Yep. I haven't, I haven't done any electronic music in five years. The, the order of locations is what, Louisville? Okay, so Louisville. Oberlin, Kansas City, Buffalo. And in between Kansas City and Buffalo, I lived in Amsterdam for a few months and uh, did like a, a workshop at Stime and kind of checked out the scene in, in Europe. And but just of, for three months, though. Just for three months, yeah. How, what's, it, what's it like being a composer without being in the center of any? Because I've only been in centers. Well, New Jersey, which is right next to New York. That's right. Then, uh, uh, then New York. Then Connecticut, which was an hour and a half from New York, mm-hmm. and then Berlin. Mm-hmm. So what's it, what's it like being a composer that's not near a center? How do you get access to stuff? How do you network? How do you get good performances? You hustle in any possible way that you can. If you're not in the center, uh, you're responsible for building everything yourself and doing everything yourself. And 
What, I, feel like, I feel like even if you are in the center, you're still responsible for building and doing everything yourself. You are, but there's a little bit more of an infrastructure that you could plug into in a place like Berlin. Like there are established ensembles, there are institutions that's that true, you that's can true. work with. Yeah. There, there, there's nothing like that if you're not in you know some kind of major, major city. So you've got to do it all yourself. You get players together. If, they, if there's a student ensemble going, great, you book them. You work with them. You you just kind of try to pull things together from every direction and kind of try to really DIY it. It's you have no choice but to be a truly DIY musician in a place in places like these. Why don't you move to a center? Well, because I, a I can't afford it. I'm already <laughs> struggling with money as it is, and b I feel like I've always been weird about just simply moving to a place with no concrete reason to be there. I mean, I, if if I were to move to New York, I could say, oh, well, I'm moving to New York to be a part of the scene. But for me, that's not quite a good, a solid enough reason to risk that kind of, you know, having to pay that kind of financial cost, you know, to live in a place like New York without something solid to be there. And all the places that I've lived, you know, I've had specific reasons to be there, mostly because of school, you know. I would never have heard of Buffalo if there wasn't the school there. I would never have thought to go to Kansas City if it weren't the school there. I guess because I have particular reasons to be in places that I am, that's why I haven't gone to a center yet. But that doesn't mean that I won't at some point. I mean, anything could happen. You like Louisville? I guess you got enough stuff going on in Louisville and you can build it. It must be nice to be able to live in a place where there's nothing so you can make something instead of being in a city of some things where you have to try and either plug in or make your own space that's right yeah you know there's always this one or the other either there's an existing infrastructure and you find a way to crawl into it or if you're very lucky you take a battering ram and create a tiny little dent for yourself in there or you build it up in in your own image basically because there's nothing there so you have the freedom to build it yourself and i like that idea of building things kind of myself and maybe it's because i haven't known another way and i haven't had the opportunity to operate in another way but that's kind of the way that i'm used to doing things also i don't know that i'm going to stay in louisville for the rest of my life i mean i'm only there right now while i'm finishing my degree and my fiance whose family also lives there she's got a she's got a nice job there and she likes it there but once i'm done and I, I start looking around for jobs or whatever. Who knows where where I'll end up? So I don't know that being in Louisville is going to be permanent for me. In fact, I kind of doubt it. But that's that's just where I am for now. So I have to. So I make the most of it. What does she want to be? I mean, that sounds kind of weird. They're getting personal, but like, don't you have to take that into account? Too? I do. Like, yeah. And like, how? What, like, what's what are those conversations like? Hey, I'm a composer. I do this weird thing that doesn't make a lot of money. I know. But I might have to uproot us because of it's, it's i'm just saying this because i have other friends in that position oh yeah I'm, I'm always like what do you what do you say to the significant other when you're like you know what we're going to cali because i got into a degree program for three years and i know that you have a steady job at like le- legitimately that we're earning most of the money from mm-hmm. but fuck it because i want to study with x like brian for anyhow sure like, and, and the other person's like who and they listen to the music and he's like this guy he's really weird and well like, yeah well, you're it, making me get quit my job for like this weirdness <laughs> well you know i mean it, it is a tough conversation and it's it's hard for anybody to plan a life together with someone else regardless of what field they're in you know i mean musicians are notoriously nomadic 
that's true. But it's, it's always going to be hard to plan your life with another person. And, and so you just have to make compromises. So, for example, you know, my girlfriend lived with me in Buffalo for three years and she hated it. She could not handle it. She was counting down the days until she could leave. So I said, okay, uh, once I'm done with Buffalo, we'll move back to Louisville for a little while. Oh, okay, so this is your compromise. Yeah, this is part of my compromise. I don't mind Louisville. It's my home, and I know how to make things happen there, like I said. But uh, when I originally went to Buffalo, I didn't really know that I was going to go back home necessarily. But, you know, she did this for me. I'm going to do this for her at least for a little while until I know what the next step is. And the thing is you already had like a social network to built in for you because you're going to the school, which means there were other students. You had professors. You had a whole little Absolutely. world that you were entering that I, you didn't have to work at really. Absolutely. I mean, you had to work at getting into the school. That's a good school. Yeah. But like once you were there, then there's like, hey, we're also composed like a group of people into the same thing that you're into. Yeah. And she's just there. It's, like I'm, as the person who knows you right it's it's very difficult and what did she do did she get a job this is kind of weird we don't have to keep this in if you don't want no, but no, like, no. did she get a job there yeah she worked at she had a couple jobs uh what did she do uh mostly mostly she worked at a school for kids on the autism spectrum she was an administrative assistant there and it it was a good school that did a lot of great work for the community and was very important you know so she worked at that at that school she had a lot of friends there uh, in in Buffalo, but it's a weird thing. And I've talked about this with other. I bet you. I bet you she was really well prepared to deal with composers working with autistic kids all day. My God. Oh, I mean, where are you on the spectrum? Did she put you on a spectrum? She she didn't put me on the spectrum, but she she does think that I have uh, receptive language issues because uh, I often have to ask people to repeat themselves. You know, like if people, if somebody's talking to me, sometimes I don't quite understand what they're saying like the words aren't clear but she thinks i have that because i'm bilingual and she said she's because she's had to deal with like other bilingual kids as part of this job who have this issue where you know the two languages in their brain confuse things and they don't quite understand and i don't know that i believe her necessarily but <laughs> she, she thinks i have this i think sometimes <laughs> when i just start listening to people obviously right now i'm really paying attention to like the words but like when somebody just goes up to me and i'm not like prepared mm-hmm. like and they just start talking to me it's just a sound yeah, it's I'm just like, a oh, sound. it's a sound. I'm like, oh shit, no, wait, this is a language that I should be paying attention to more than like just ba 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 ba. Yeah, and see, I'm like, that's what I hear. See, I think that's that's what I think too is because of our training. You know, we're trained to really pay attention to sound as you know, kind of abstract phenomenon without necessarily semantic meaning. So you know, we're used to just listening to sounds, and so suddenly when a sound, we have to listen to a sound semantically, it's like, oops, got to switch gears here for a second. We're going to end up getting killed by that one day, but it's, one of these days it's going to be, and we're going to be like, what? Like, there's a car <laughs> in the way, you're got to get hit by a car. I know, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I, I believe it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you're in Louisville right now. Uh-huh. You think that eventually you'll get out of there, or? You know, my problem is, is that I'm like, how do you do that? I would never do that. Mm-hmm. You know, and then it's amazing that people find a way to make that work, you know? Well, you find you find a way to make anything work. <laughs> you know, you, you, you do what you can. So I, I'm not good at kind of really long-range planning in my life, which is ironic because uh, I'm all about long-range long planning when I'm writing music. But for my own life, somehow, it's much more difficult. Wait, what do you mean long-range planning when like, writing music? Like, eventually, I want to end up in this spot? No, or, no, like or, when I'm, when I'm writing mean, a, a piece. A piece, yeah. Okay, so when I'm yeah. writing a piece, like, I'm really good at conceiving kind of the large 
large scale structure of a piece, but I'm not so good at conceiving the large scale structure of my own life. Yeah. You know, (laughs) so five years from now, I have no idea where I'll end up, what I'll be doing, what's going to happen to me. But for now, my priority is to finish my degree, finish my dissertation and look for opportunities that result from that, whether it's a teaching job somewhere, whether it's a fellowship, whether it's some kind of even scholarship to Europe, you know, DAAD or whatever. You should apply for the DAAD. Yes, and and you and I were talking about this earlier. Like, I, you know, lots of my friends come to Europe and I could never imagine how they live. You know, what happens when the money runs out? What do you do? Do you apply for more stuff? How can you apply for more stuff if you don't have any kind of official status within the country? Like, it's always been like a giant mystery to me and I've never really known how it's worked until you told me that, Uh, an artist visa is possible and that it's easy to get. The point is, um, lots of things are possible for me, and I don't know which one of those will play out, if any of them, but I'm ready to kind of adapt to whatever situation comes my way, and whatever happens, uh, I'm going to try to keep on writing music in whatever circumstance I happen to end up. Does it keep you up at night? I'm putting you in my shoes now, Yeah. right? And in a certain way, we are in the same position. Sure. And I... I feel the I feel the same way too, but at the same time, it causes an immense amount of anxiety. Absolutely, like lack of long term. So how do you how do you deal with that? The only way to deal with it is to focus on what you're doing in the present moment. Because if this is something that's beyond your control, then focusing on it is not going to help put it in your control anymore. So that's why for now, I can't control what happens to me. Uh, five years from now, but I can control the music that I'm writing, the progress in my degree, the people I surround myself with, my uh, participation in the community, uh, organizing performances, being a musical person. These are the things that I can control that help contribute to my future. So those are the things that I'm going to focus on. That's true. You are a very active guy. Well, I I think you have to be when when you're a composer, you know, especially a composer in the United States, because... You know, like you and I were talking about, there's nothing really in the United States that helps composers. They have to they have to do everything kind of themselves, especially outside of the centers. So you you just have to be active. There's no there's no other choice. So let's start talking about your music. I really okay. liked that piece last night, by the way. Thank you very I much. Couldn't, I couldn't exactly like I was in the back, so I yeah. didn't know exactly what, what I know it was different surfaces being mm-hmm. mic'd. Mm-hmm. So maybe quickly explain that piece to me. Okay. I, can I use that piece in, in this? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'd, yeah, I'd, yeah, I'd be thrilled. So in that piece, it's called Portrait Sequence Blanching Out. I have a very small percussion setup, two percussionists, each of which have two tom-toms. One of them has two bongos, another has two congas, and then each has an auxiliary instrument. So one of them has a pair of ceramic tiles, and another one has a textured glass cutting board. And... Instead of striking these instruments like you would for traditional percussion playing, they wear metal thimbles on their fingers, and it's all scraping and scratching the surface of the instrument. And so, obviously, each of the drums has kind of a different pitch and a different timbre that results from the material of the drum head and the particular kind of texture on the drum head. But Do they- you specify all this? Do you say that it has to be a certain type of drum head, or are you okay with it being different each time? I don't require a specific drum head, but in the program notes, I mentioned a drum head that works very, very well uh, that I've used in the past with people 
with the Crossfire Percussion Duo, who are an amazing duo from Buffalo, for whom I wrote this piece. And so I list in the uh, the program notes or performance notes or whatever that you know they use these particular kinds of heads. They work very well. Uh, you're not required, but if you want a quick go-to thing that you know is going to work, here's the thing. Did they use that here? Uh, I'm not sure exactly. I mean, I think they either used that or something very, very close. They're an incredible group, an incredible yeah. group of musicians. So they, they know what they're doing. They, they had my complete confidence and trust. And, you know, they, they knew exactly what was necessary for the piece. Uh, that space isn't ideal for that kind of piece. Really? Why not? Because it's too big. Um, really, that piece... But it's mic'd. It's mic'd, but even still, details get lost. I mean, you saw you saw the miking. Like there were two kind of overhead mics. If you're gonna if you're gonna really mic it and make it good, then you gotta have everything really close miked to get really the grain and the texture of the sound. Because otherwise, it just gets absorbed into the resonance and reverberation of the space. And last night, it sounded really good, and that's the best it could have sounded in a space like that. But ideally, actually that piece would have been done downstairs in that tiny room where everybody is right up against the instruments. And basically, the performers are kind of inside the audience, and the audience's ears are right there on the drums. And that, to me, is the kind of ideal experience of that piece. But uh, obviously, you know, it has to be adapted to multiple different spaces. And I think that last night, it, it, it did sound very good, and that's the best it could have sounded in a space as huge and resonant as that one. Do you picture a space when you write a piece? No, because honestly, you may have this too, and I think a lot of composers of our generation kind of do, where we grow up listening to recordings that are all close-miked and all in our ears at all times. So when I imagine the sounds of instruments that I'm writing for, I'm imagining my ear basically right up there. It's hard for me to imagine something that's not close-miked, that's always kind of how I hear things and how I want to hear things and how I want instruments to sound. So that's not exactly a space, but it kind of is. And so uh, whenever I'm writing, I always feel myself gravitating towards a situation that allows somebody to listen that way.
for me, this piece was almost like zooming in on a sound. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, uh, there's these special cameras that the BBC has when they do nature documentaries that they'll zoom in and you'll be able to see like bacteria and insects. And you're like, oh, this is what's really going on in this little world. Mm-hmm. You know, and I feel like you were almost doing the same thing with the scraping and scratching. Like, oh, this is what it really sounds like, you know, with your, you know, with your ear. Like if we were dogs mm-hmm. or something like that, that's what that, this is what, you know, scraping would sound like yeah yeah and and a lot of that comes from the granular texture of you know the surface you know because you can hear the grains as the finger and the thimble kind of scrape across it and there's something about that kind of a granular textured quality that feels uh rich and detailed you know even when you're sitting far away you know and that maybe has to do with the fact that essentially uh if if you believe in, well, even, even quantum physics is granular, but, but uh, classical physics, you know, and uh, believes that things are made up of tiny little components that are basically shapes of grains, you know? And so I think the smaller you get, you know, with a microscope, for instance, and the more you can clearly, you can see the grains. We yeah, as- that's good. It's microscopic. I would say your piece is microscopic. Yeah. yeah. So we associate grains and kind of granular experience with microscopic experience with zooming in so i think maybe the sound of the grains kind of by association makes you feel like you're listening to something close even if you're in the back of the hall you know but also there's you know there's some really intimate moments in the piece where uh especially at the end the piece stops being expressive in a traditional sense you know because for the first uh three quarters of the piece there are lots of these kind of waves and romantic sort of gestures but then at the end it's very flat just scrape 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 where uh the instruments kind of express themselves in the most in their purest voice without you know uh simply kind of asserting their asserting themselves without you know kind of be, uh, making expressive statements and i think that kind of intimacy Uh, of the music also feels like we have to listen inward and kind of lean in to kind of hear, which adds to the idea that we're zooming in onto something. Are you always this type of an intimate composer? Mm, No, not necessarily. Um, Like, do you have any, I don't, I I, I didn't hear anything that you wrote that has like, like loud bombastic from far away. I do bombastic in my, in my own kind of way. I'm not the kind of composer that fetishizes quietness necessarily as, as a thing. I also don't fetishize like loud saturation, but I have, I have my own ways of getting loud, of, of getting noisy. And in a piece like this, it's, uh, I'm a little bit more limited in how, in uh, kind of how climactic I could be in that regard. But there, there are other pieces I I have that get loud, that get crunchy and, and noisy. Maybe, maybe not bombastic, but you know. Like, is it always a mic'd thing, or like I'm I'm just trying to get a sense of like your like methodology, of like how you like how you would start thinking about something. How I'd start so, thinking about something. Yeah, yeah. Like this, I almost feel like it was obvious. Like, or in my head, I picture you like scratching something and then like getting up really close, mm-hmm. and you're like, oh wait, there's a piece in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the I mean, the way this one started was these two friends of mine, the Crossfire Percussion Duo, asked me to write a piece. And I'd written a lot of percussion music before, so I knew that I didn't want to approach things the usual way. And I really got tired of attacks, of striking things, because, first of all, there's no control of the resonance when you strike a percussion instrument, particularly a metal one. And I hated that I couldn't 
that I couldn't control the resonance. It was just there and it did its own thing and there's nothing I could do about it. Well, I mean, you can mute you can mute it. You can mute it, but it's not quite the, but that's all you can do. You either let it ring or you mute it and and that's about it. No, you can slightly mute it and dampen it or you can prepare it or there are the ways to there, I think there's ways to control the resonance of uh, you know, it's not like the person hits it and then runs away. Whatever happens is like, it's still in front of it so we can like do stuff to it while it's resonating. Sure, but I, I understand. I, I guess. I guess for I me, that mean. wasn't. That wasn't really. It wasn't really a predictable amount of control over resonance enough. And also, you know, I felt like the mallets were kind of, kind of got in the way of the viscerality of playing percussion because percussion is supposed to be like, you know, the most visceral kind of instrumental playing. And I know players imagine that the sticks, that the mallets are extensions of their body, but I wanted to know what it'd be like to get rid of that and have the most intimate kind of contact just with the hands and fingers. And also I was interested in seeing how I could make continuous shapes with sounds on percussion instruments, like, you know, swells and drones and kind of uh, d details in the middle of the sound. So not, not to just have a, an attack and decay phase of the sound, but to have a sustained phase that I could control and shape like I would on, on a string or a wind instrument or a voice, you know. So that's, that's what led me to kind of figure, figure out these scratchings and kind of uh, sustained continuous sounds. I assume that you had these instruments in front of you while composing, right? Uh, I had some. I had a pair of bongos at home, and you know, I had the cutting board in my kitchen that I then gave to the players, which my girlfriend wasn't happy about because she loved that cutting board. <laughs> but you got it back, right? No, they have it. They still have it. They because they play that piece a lot, and so they they got to use it. So that's fine. Gotta... See, this is when we look at the compromises she makes. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, move, move, move into Buffalo, and then all of a sudden she has to cut something on a table now instead of a cutting board. <laughs> she she somehow she somehow stuck by me. God so, bless her. <laughs> but really, I I worked a lot with them on this piece. So we met very frequently. They would try things out, and I would make recordings and. And I would be able to hear what it sounds like. And I would imagine that would be the, one of the few situations where you actually didn't need the players in front of you. You know, I mean, maybe like for stuff that they like and don't like and, you know, sculpting stuff to their personality. But like, for example, if you're going to do something for bass clarinet, mm -hmm. like, OK, then you really need the player in front of you because you don't know what the hell you're doing. Sure. Like, or I mean, you kind of like obviously, you know what you're doing to a certain extent. But then after that, you're not going to be able to have your knowledge go beyond expertise of somebody who has spent their whole life doing that. Right. But if you just find these instruments and it's then you're also kind of maybe starting out, maybe not like muscle memory wise or even like being able to read music as good as a percussion player can or in the way that they do. But as far as like the expertise of what's possible, you're kind of at the same level. Um, yeah, you're you're right. I mean, I didn't. In that sense, I didn't absolutely need them to be there, but it was the piece would not have uh, turned out the way it did if I hadn't been in very close collaboration with them. Because How would it have turned out? What did they give it that they, you couldn't get? Uh, it allowed me to kind of hear these phrases in really fine detail because I couldn't perform these phrases myself. There are actually some very detailed and kind of rhythmically complicated phrases in there that... I could have a general idea of what that sounded like, but nothing really specific. And when I got the idea of how specific and detailed and rich these phrases could be, that altered the way that I conceived of composing for 
these techniques. Oh, okay. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. So yeah, I could, I could scratch and scrape and whatever, but I couldn't do it with the kind of fine control that they could. And as a result, I probably couldn't have written music that's as uh, rich and expressive if I were simply limited to my own abilities. Okay, you know? it would have been a piece that anybody could anybody could play. But yeah. now this is for now. You're like, okay, this is what a percussion player can do with this thing that anybody can do. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's crucial when you're writing for anybody. So, for instance, I mean, I'm working on a piano solo right now, and I could play the piano like I've studied piano before, and so I get. I have an idea of the limitations of the fingers and what works and what doesn't, what will give you carpal tunnel and what won't, but it's not the same as giving it to a pianist and saying, what is, what can you do with this? And then the feedback you get from that alters what you write for them afterwards as you continue working, you know? There's also this other danger of you actually working with the... This another composer told me that this happened with prepared piano, not prepared piano, but uh, a percussionist doing something inside the piano. He had done all the experiments himself, and he had spent months writing this piece, and therefore becoming an almost virtuoso on the type of, of like literally like having a glass putting a certain type of pressure on the strings with a, a glass that will will make it not rattle and gliss. Mm-hmm. And if you put too much. It's like it won't work, and if you put sure. too little, it'll rattle. Yeah, right? that's right. And he got really good at doing that because he'd been working on it for months, and then he gave it to the players, and they only had so much rehearsal time. And the percussionist was like, I don't have time to get good at this. It's just yeah. it, the performance is two weeks. We have eight hours of rehearsal a day, and it's inside of a piano. I don't have a piano at my house, so I can't practice it. You know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, and because of that, like... See, if he started that, if he started that process earlier... Uh, and involve that performer in the early in like the early stages of the piece like the performer by that point would know exactly the kind of pressure and and whatnot to get the to get the right sound but because he did it all himself until the last minute and then he got the performer involved like that's that's how that happened shit i gotta make a phone call (laughs) no i know i I really do i i i'm in i'm in i'm gonna send an email today (laughs) i I have to talk to a percussion player about inside piano stuff now I, I'm in the same space. I'm in the same place with the, this piano solo. I've been promising this pianist that I'd send the music, and for like weeks now, and I haven't sent them anything, and it's going to be this last minute thing. So, so I know, and it's because of the way we work, you know, and the kind of solitary nature of composing. It's easy to fall into this habit of like, oh, I'm just going to write and write and write, and then I'll give it to them a month beforehand, and they'll just learn it. I'm guilty of this. You're guilty of this. We all are. But I've found in my experience that. It's always best to involve that performer from the very beginning because they'll know the sounds and they'll get to know how to make them from months beforehand as opposed to right before the, the thing. But you know, the, the truth is like professional ensembles, you know, like it's great if you can have a relationship with somebody like this percussion duo in Buffalo, right? Yeah. But it's in Buffalo. I'm assuming they were not just earning their living being a percussion duo. No. Right? <laughs> one of them works at Starbucks. The other one uh, is a cook in a restaurant. Yeah. yeah. Ex- you know, ex- and I'm not saying they're not badasses, but I'm saying like they live in Buffalo and they have the time to meet up with you to, you know, make a great piece. That's right. You know, but if this is like professional percussion duo in paris that has you know so many gigs a year they're like i don't have time to meet with you that's right um, you know three days a week for the next month absolutely and all of a sudden you're in a position where you have to be that composer that's guilty of that thing and that's always that's always a really difficult compromise because yeah i've been in both situations and i'm sure you have too you know and 
it gets you thinking like what is best for me and best for my music is it best for me and my music to work with kind of work with my friends and people who aren't as prestigious or famous but they are true collaborators and they know exactly what I want and they get that level of detail and it's fantastic when they do or am I going to work with famous ensembles that put me in big festivals that you know have a lot of attention and prestige but you know I don't get to meet with them until the last second they play it once maybe twice and then they call it a day most composers are placed in both situations in various ways and have to navigate both but I've been thinking a lot about which, if I had my way, which one would I prefer? Which one would be best for me? I think one's better for your music and one's better for your ego. That, that may be true, but if you hear a famous ensemble give a substandard performance of your piece, how does that help your ego? So many times, composers have been excited because they get to work with Ensemble X and they're playing their music and at this big thing and it's going to be great. And, you know, then they come there, they have two rehearsals and it's not at all kind of coming together in the way that they thought they would. And, you know, yeah, it gets them a lot of visibility, but it's not the clearest representation of their music. And it maybe would have been sounded better if they'd gotten their friends to just work with them for six months and then and then uh, do a concert there it's a tricky balancing act and you know it's just something that i've been thinking about so which one do you prefer i don't i don't know yet i don't know because i think for for the sake of the this was really i mean uh uh schlag uh it's the schlagwerk right i mean these 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 guys are pretty well known they have a bunch of cds out i don't know how old they are as an ensemble they've been they've been around for a very long time at least 35 years i mean they played 35 years yeah they played like the they played like uh, the early stockhausen operas they've been around for a very very long time i don't know with consistent membership necessarily most of the guys from last night seem pretty young. Yeah, that's but, true. But they, they've been around for 35, almost 40 years. And they just constantly replace members? I guess I guess so. I They're like that so. group Ricky Martin was in, Menudo? Yeah, Menudo, yeah. 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 Ricky Martin used to be in Schlagwerk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, uh, working with them was fantastic because, you know, I got to rehearse with them actually quite a bit while, while I was here, you know, and I was lucky enough that they were very invested in the piece and, you know... They really wanted to make it work, and they practiced, and they they really enjoyed it. But you you don't get that guarantee necessarily that an ensemble is going to be that invested, that is going to be that interested, that they really want to do anything other than kind of fulfill an obligation for a commission or for a festival. So you never really quite know what you are going to get. You can only hope for the best in situations like that. Oh, it's so it's so horrible when you show up and you and it's like it's the worst of those two options where they're just filling fulfilling an obligation. Yeah. And you're like I thought this was going to be I thought we were going to be friends. I thought you liked me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no I know. I know. But it turns out somebody else made the decision for the ensemble to actually commission you or like you know some board of director actually That's right. had to fulfill some obligation to get a u.s composer or I'm, I'm or something making, yeah or you know or or and something that you fit in you're like okay this is the guy and you'll be commissioning him for work and the players are like what what's going on okay, whatever do we get does this help us get funding to get paid yeah and all and all of a sudden you show up and, and they're like okay let's get through this yeah yeah let's get through this oh that's too difficult yeah or something like that. Like, oh, yeah no and man. that and that ha- that happens a lot and then when that does you're sitting there thinking like Fuck, why are these people playing it and not my friends that work in the restaurant back home? Because those people could play it. 
you know, and they care about it and they love it and and they really make it sound amazing and you know but but these people clearly don't give a fuck like what am i doing here yeah like, you know i want you to know that my friend who is a chef can do this yeah so you're worse than a chef well yeah <laughs> i mean actually i bet you the chef was good at the cutting board thing right and he's like i know this instrument oh yeah yeah well yeah i mean musicians tend to make good chefs because you know they they're detail oriented they know how to kind of the proper mixtures of things you know pr- they can be really precise so uh but i think this this whole conversation goes back to the one that we had about uh being in a center versus not being in a center yeah, actually. No, actually i was thinking about that too yeah because you know when you're not in a center and you have to make things work with who's available frequently that's the thing that happens you know is that you're lucky to stumble upon somebody who likes you a lot or, and is good at their instrument and is willing to dedicate themselves to working on a project with you. And in the end, uh, it might not result in a super prestigious performance at some festival, but it will be fantastic music that's true to you and to your vision. Probably not seen by very many people, certainly not very many important people that could advance your career, but it will culminate in a musically fulfilling experience and a musically satisfying relationship as opposed to this thing that'll help that might help your career if you're lucky enough to get a good performance but you never really quite know which is a situation that lots of composers in centers might maybe find themselves in i think there's also like a thing in my head where it's like okay that guy's a badass percussionist but he's also a chef and maybe in the back of his head he's like i want to be a percussionist full-time sure and i don't want to be a chef forever now i'm a i'm projecting whatever emotions i think he might have onto him but no like, I, no i think i think you're right i mean and m- and in order to do that that's not possible in buffalo so maybe he should you know that's i think that's part of it like also mm-hmm. like an ambition thing in my head of like why aren't you near a center because okay it's more difficult there and you have to deal with all this bullshit but you do have the opportunity to have that be your thing and not have to get up every day and, you know, cook whatever he's cooking. But do you in New York? Because in Buffalo, you can have a one, a gigantic one-bedroom apartment for $500 and work part-time at a restaurant and then spend the rest of your time playing music. Whereas to afford uh, something a quarter of that size in New York, you probably have to juggle at least a couple jobs that add up to full-time and probably then that probably means you'll have less time to play music. It's true, but there's also the opportunity there of you could possibly then, you know, you could be one of those and this sounds, maybe this even sounds douchey, but like you have the possibility to be one of those few people at the top that are actually able to do that, right? Because I know my, I know, I know a couple of people who are able to do that, who are full time composers in New York. That's what they do. Now they're hustling like crazy. That's right. Which is a part-time job onto itself. Probably a full-time job onto itself. Yeah. But also, because they're in New York, they're able to not have to do something else. Sure. I mean, but this is America in a nutshell, isn't it? There's always that possibility of rising to the top. And that possibility is open to just about anybody. But your chances of realizing this possibility, realistically, what are they? You know, because for every one or two composers, like your friend that you described... How many can you name that move to New York and still have to work some kind of crappy job to support their composing habit, you know? Like, that result is more typical than the one that you described, I think, even though the possibility 
possibility is always evenly distributed, but realization is always kind of concentrated in one or two people. Yeah, exactly. That's where our delusional ambition comes in, which maybe I have. I don't know. Well, we, I think if you're a composer, you have to be at least somewhat megalomaniacal, yeah, you know, yeah. because why else would you pursue such crazy music, such complete impracticality, basing your entire life around this crazy stuff like you have to be a little bit uh, egotistical and megalomaniacal in order to even get to this point so we all have a little bit of this diluted ambition but there comes a point where we have to make uh serious calculations about how to you know proceed with our lives and for some people they decide that it's worth the risk to try to be able to do this because you know there is that possibility of reaching straight to the top. And some people make the calculation that and what's the top? I mean, that's ridiculous. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, in your case, in, that you that you describe the top means being able to compose full time or at least part time that and part time hustling. So maybe that's the top. Anyway, everybody's got to kind of make a calculation as to what, uh, how much they're willing to risk and what the possibility is. Uh, for them to have this ambition realized and, you know, live their lives according to that calculation. Well, I think that's good. We've been talking for a while. I think it's a good place to leave it. Okay. Hey, thank you for doing this. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you. <laughs> it's, it's been a lot of fun.